Jesse Campo is Executive Director and Head of Process Chemistry and Discovery Process Chemistry for Merck. He has a PhD in Chemistry from the University of Ottawa and also a Bachelor's in Biopharmaceutical Sciences from the University of Ottawa. Welcome, Elsie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Elsie, we're uh, very serious here at the Periodic Bagel, so we want to start with a very serious question. Why the Why the Patriots? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, actually, it's a really uh, pretty simple explanation. So I grew up uh, about an hour outside of Montreal, between Montreal and Ottawa, uh, on a border town called Cornwall. Basically, um, when we are watching CBS or NBC or Fox up there, you usually get either the New England feed or you get the uh, upstate New York feed. So when I was a kid, it was basically either the Bills that we got or the Patriots. And uh, when I was in high school, my high school uh, team was the Patriots. Like that was the name of the sort of school mascots. And so that's sort of how it stuck. And then it obviously helped that like when I was in college, the Patriots were sort of winning Super Bowls left and right. So I just sort of built an affinity for it there. But it's, it's mostly because that's what was on TV. Gotcha. So, so with that, we actually have a fun quiz for you to kick things off. <laughs> um so are, are you ready to uh to answer some good questions about the patriots and tom brady oh okay let's go all right question number one tom brady is second place in overall career passing yards who is first passing yards um i'm gonna guess it's either peyton manning or brett Favre, but i'm not sure which one so it's, it's actually neither of those it's drew Brees. oh I know Drew Brees is ahead of him on touchdowns, yeah. but yeah, that no, makes I, sense. I, that makes sense. Okay, so question number two. How many Super Bowls has Tom Brady lost? <laughs> you're, now you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom Brady has lost three Super Bowls, two of them to Eli Manning. Yeah, that was going to be a bonus question for you. Um, <laughs> so he's actually tied with John Elway and Fran Tarkenton, also for second place. Do, do you know well, who only, uh, only, the number only one? Jim Kelly lost more Super Bowls. Than that? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, Jim Kelly has lost four. Yeah. Okay. Question number three: In which round of the 2000 NFL draft was Tom Brady picked? Oh, it's like way at the end. Um, it's like 170 something, right? So it must be like the eighth round or the sixth. It's past the sixth for sure. But I don't. I don't know exactly which one. But it's somewhere out there. Yeah, it was a, it was the sixth round. He was the 199th overall pick and seventh quarterback picked in that year. At 199, he was only the seventh quarterback picked. I feel like now there's seven quarterbacks that are picked before the end of the second round. I don't know. I mean, like I think there were a lot of running backs. Yeah, yeah, um, different era, I guess. Do you know? Do you know who the first quarterback uh, was that was drafted that year? In 2000, I have no idea. It was Chad Pennington. <laughs> well, that's probably a good reason why I don't know who that is. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Tom Brady is fifth place in career quarterback rating with a score of 97. Who's in first place? Oh. I'll give you some options here. Okay. Um, okay. Option A is Aaron Rodgers. B is Russell Wilson. C is Drew Brees. And D is Tony Romo. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, Passer rating is a quarterback rating is a relatively recent stat. I would guess, hmm, you want a high completion percentage. I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with Drew Brees. 
So it's actually Aaron Rodgers. And so the four people mm-hmm. I named are in that order, one, two, and three, one, two, three, and four. Okay. <laughs> I still don't know All how right. that number's calculated. I've always been curious about that. The formula is is long and has a bunch of variables in it. More difficult than calculating uh, process mass intensity, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I, I'm thinking of it, and I feel like it, it looks like the quadratic equation, but I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I forget which number of question this is, but here it is. Um, who intercepted Tom Brady's final pass in the January 2007 AFC Championship game against the Indianapolis Colts? Was it A, Marlon Jackson, B, Dwight Freeney, C, Robert Mathis, or D, Kelvin Hayden? 2007. Um, I don't know. I seem to remember Freeney intercepting stuff from the line all the time, so I'm going to go with him, but I, I, I really don't know. It's, uh, it's Marlon Jackson, A. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Next question. What is the regulation pressure in an NFL football? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Deflate gate questions. You're really stooping that low. <laughs> no, this is just this is just honest questions here. If you're out <laughs> um, to be honest with you, I have no idea what the regulation pressure. What I do know is that the time I, I did whip out my old. PV equals NRT equations from GenChem to try to figure out how much pressure would come out of that ball, but I really don't remember what the what the PSI pressure is. Yeah, it's it's 13, and I, I was actually thinking of asking you a question like if you were to deflate a football um, x number of PSI, what would the temperature be of the air? Assuming no, no heat transfer loss, but I, I got lazy. You know what's really I, I funny to... is the Halloween after that. I um, you know we go out Halloween with the kids and I. I don't usually dress up, but that year I just put on a Brady jersey and I had a fully deflated football and just walked around <laughs> with that the whole time. That's awesome. <laughs> I I wanted to ask questions about like uh, how much longer would a would a hydrogenation take if you lowered the, P- lowered the pressure? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and and then like our, our last one here is according to NFL officials, what was the pressure of five of the eleven footballs found during halftime of the January? 2015 AFC Championship game. So if, if regulation was 13, and I'm guessing they can't be too soft, I don't know, 11? 10? Yeah, yeah, below 11 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like it was a plus or minus two pounds thing. That makes sense. <laughs> but, you know, they, they spent the whole first half out in the cold like that. You know, I don't know, man. Yeah. And judging, judging by how many Patriots receivers you know, dropped important passes in critical situations. I'm not sure that the the softballs actually helped. But. <laughs> Elsie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm originally from uh, a small town in, in Canada called uh, Cornwall in eastern Ontario. And uh, I'm the youngest of uh, five children. And so um, by the time that I was uh, rolling out into school and, and, and showing interests, um, you know, there was already uh, uh, professions in my family. And so um, my father's been a salesman his whole life. My mother w- was a school teacher. And uh, uh, I have two of my siblings, my sister and my brother, who both went into education. And so it was kind of weird when um, I guess sometime around grade 10, I started getting really interested and invigorated by science. And in fact, because I'm the youngest of five, a lot of the teachers I had had taught my brothers and sisters and were also very surprised by my enthusiasm and um, 
and uh, and results in those classes. And, and ultimately, you know, I, I really, really liked uh, biology. I was really fascinated by uh, how cells did what they did and, and really started thinking about, uh, you know, those types of careers. Um, to be completely honest, when I got to, to, to college, when I enrolled at the University of Ottawa, I took the biopharmaceutical sciences degree, which was a brand new degree at the time because it was very multidisciplinary and I didn't really know the difference between all the disciplines yet. Um, and in fact, once I got there, I actually didn't really love my biology classes and I much more gravitated towards organic chemistry. And I think that's in large part due to the sort of excellent faculty uh, that they had at the time and they still do in fact. And I can, you know, without a doubt credit you know, Professor Louis Berrio for sort of, um, you know, making that uh, a super interesting subject and ultimately decided to make a career out of it, um, you know, based on on uh, what I learned from him in second year organic chemistry. And uh, like a lot of people, by the time I finished my undergrad degree, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, at that point, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, uh, who is now my wife, was already sort of on her career path to becoming a, a certified public accountant. And I was sort of like, don't really know what I want to do. I know I like chemistry. And so I sort of fell into grad school. I didn't really plan for it. Um, and uh, because I hadn't planned for it, I was sort of last minute and, and didn't have like a ton of options. And so I sort of visited the schools around, uh, but mostly focused on the University of Ottawa. And again, in Canada, that's fairly frequent that undergrads stay at their institution for grad school, which I know is pretty different here in the U.S., Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I met uh, Keith. He had he had just been hired. So so Keith Fang, you, my PhD advisor, had just been hired that that January. And so I was sort of met him, you know, in the spring, talking about what his lab was going to do and what he was interested in and and what I was interested in, or at least thought I was interested in. Um, and we sort of hit it off on like on a personal level. I mean, he had nothing to show. He he had no he had no you know, results from his lab, he had no students, right? Um, and so it was really just sort of on on a on a personal note that I resonated with him and sort of his energy and his enthusiasm and just decided, hey, what the hell, Let, let's, let's do this um, and decided to join his lab. So, you know, I did my PhD there um, and it was, you know, probably the best, you know, four years of my life for sure. It was just a, an amazing time. And then I joined Merck. And so I've been at Merck since... Um, August 2007 now, which seems like that flew by really, really fast, uh, initially at Merck Frost in Canada. And uh, that was a really special place to work. It was a phenomenal uh, research group there. Um, I was in a process chemistry group where the majority of the people who worked there were in discovery. So I learned a lot about discovery uh, chemistry and, and, and how drugs are discovered and how they transition into development. Um, and unfortunately, in 2010, that site was closed and I was offered relocation uh, to the U.S. And so that was a pretty big decision for my family. You know, um, my wife and I had a young uh, child at the time. He was just born, so he like, wasn't even a year old yet. Uh, we lived very close to both our families. And so it was a pretty difficult decision for us to decide to, to sort of pick up and leave. Um, but we decided we'd give it a shot. And um, I guess the rest is history. So I've been in New Jersey now since 2010. And uh, sort of, you know, I've done a, a variety of roles, I would say probably six or seven different roles in the last 10 years. Um, and for the last, uh, I guess, year and a half, I've, I've been in the role that, that I'm in now. Right on. Um, so, yeah, let's, uh, I've, I've got a few questions kind of related to, to what you've talked about. Um, if you hadn't decided to become a, a 
chemist, and this is actually, I think, uh, CJ's question that I'm stealing here. Um, yeah. What would you have done if you if you had decided not to become a chemist? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So I can tell you some of the things that I've always been interested in. So I've always been interested in sort of communication. Um, I was sort of a, a public speaker when I was in high school. And I was interested in radio um, and uh, I was also interested in journalism. We had a local radio station and I kind of met some of those folks and I thought that was interesting. And But by the time I finished high school, I was pretty sure I wanted to do something that was in the STEM field. Um, and so I actually went to university with the intent of maybe pursuing uh, medicine. But I was really interested, and you guys are going to laugh, I was really interested in the problems that coroners have to solve in terms of determining cause of death. There's like a huh. problem-solving aspect of that that I always this, found really interesting. This is pre-CSI, isn't it? Yeah, it was pre-CSI, in fact, because this yeah. was like – actually, you know what? This is more a Quincy medical examiner, you nice. know, like – the. The A&E's, watching A&E in the 90s, and it's like all law and order in Quincy. And yeah, so 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 that was certainly one of the things I was interested in going in. Because in high school, chemistry was more sort of the, you know, the periodic table and balancing equations. And I was never, you know, pH, that kind of stuff. I was never really excited by that, whereas my biology courses were all about how do you name these organic molecules and what are their function and so all of that sort of came to a head when I was in university and, and Louis Berrio, I think one day sort of making a comment about, you know, what, you know, essentially saying like, and this, I say this all the time, like, you know, one reaction can change the world. Um, and you could do that, you know, one morning you could get up and change the world. And I, I thought that was really exciting. Yeah. So I may have been a, a coroner, I guess. Uh, who knows? I mean, I, I just got to this point where I was sort of prepping, you know, that you, you do all these med school prep things, right? interviews and stuff like that when I was in my third year. And uh, I don't know, that it, it felt um, like it wasn't the right thing for me to pursue. And I just decided to wait a year at the time. I was like, ah, I'm going to finish my degree because you could actually apply out of your third year back then. I don't think that's the case anymore. Right. And then in that fourth year, I took four organic chemistry classes and then I was I was 100 percent in. Yeah. You know, at that point. So you did your your PhD with uh, uh, Professor Keith Fanu, and uh, I know we we just uh, commemorated it's it's been ten years since his passing, um, and so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about his uh, his legacy. I mean, um, just generally speaking, you know, the impact that he left on the field of chemistry, but also I know you you tweet a lot and you share a lot about uh, your personal learnings from him. I know you had a very close relationship. Um, so could you talk a little bit, I guess, first about uh, the impact that he had on the, the field of chemistry and then maybe share some personal stories? Sure. Keith had a pretty profound impact on the field, right? Um, both as a graduate student where he did a, a ton of interesting chemistry around asymmetric ring opening of, of strained uh, molecules. And, and there's actually a really um, highly cited review that, that he wrote around the halide effects in transition metal catalysis. With, uh, um, with Professor Mark Lawton's. Yeah, when he was a PhD student with Mark Lawton's, and uh, and and I think that those those you know even as a graduate student were were pretty important lasting legacies. He came he became a, a PI right at the time that sort of um, you know CH functionalization reactions were sort of um, penetrating the uh, synthetic organic chemistry community. I think that 
you know, we, we tend to think of that as a return to the field, but I think inorganic chemists have been doing these types of reactions forever and never really stopped, right? I think this is where sort of organic chemists decided like, oh, we can actually use this to, to, to make molecules and we're going to have to start turning over these catalysts. And I think the way that he approached those problems and the way that, that he thought about picking the right things to care about um, clearly, you know, had an impact on the field. And I think even last year, he was still one of the highly, uh, most highly cited researchers you know, even 10 years, uh, he was in the top 100, 10 years after, after his death. Um, and so I think that, that, that shows you how seminal a lot of those papers were in terms of, um, a variety of concepts. I'll highlight a few. I think the first and and probably most important legacy was sort of the work, um, that the group did around, uh, understanding the mechanism, uh, of uh, direct air relation reactions. And so, there was a lot of nomenclature wars back then. I don't know if they were wars, but um, you know, people really wanted to call things CH activations because that was sexy in a title. Um, and Keith always had a problem with that because he felt like CH activation has a mechanistic undertone, and activating a CH bond is different than doing functionalization at that mm-hmm. position. So, for example, you know, if you brominated an aromatic ring, is that CH activation? I mean, right. um, it's kind of funny. I remember him. Uh, in one of our conversations, sort of saying, one day somebody's going to call a bromination reaction a CH activation reaction, and, and, and the world's going to explode. <laughs> and the world's going to explode. And and to be completely honest with you, I saw that on a slide, you know, five years ago, and I was like, Keith is rolling over in his grave now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it literally said CH bromination on a slide, and half half of the half of the reactions were like NBS, and and I was just like, come on. But anyways. <laughs> So because of that, and I think that that was a motivation that he had, right? Sort of like, let's not, let's call this what it is. And, and what we were doing at the time was using aryl halides to directly uh, form a biaryl bond on uh, uh, either an aromatic or heteroaromatic uh, molecule. And so we called them direct air relations. But because of that, you know, words matter, right? Because of that, we pursued a lot of studies into um, how those reactions worked and why they worked. And I think the, the, the discoveries that were made there was um, what is now known as concerted methylation deprotonation. It started with, um, I, I remember this like it was yesterday, um, you know, we had a whole bunch of different hypotheses on the board and experiments we were going to do to to sort of pick them apart. And um, we had one of them that was essentially a three-coordinate uh, version of the CMD where the base um, comes in externally. And I went to the library to find a reference that I couldn't get online. And it's basically a mercuration reaction. So mercury acetate activates uh, arenes in what would now be called uh, a concerted methylation deprotonation mechanism. And, and that analogy is what we use to sort of uh, build that model and, and, and develop a hypothesis. And, and of course, now I think people sort of accept that, um, you know, aryl palladium-2 complexes will activate arenes via concerted methylation deprotonation and that that concept applies you know across many other metals and many other types of 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 uh, ch functionalization reactions and so that's probably the biggest legacy uh, that he has and, and what drives a lot of those citations and then the other thing is you know um was one of the first uh groups to demonstrate that you could do this in a sort of oxidative fashion so between two aromatic rings and so there's a science paper from 2005 or 2006 i forget where um, Dave Stewart at the time discovered that uh, indoles could be coupled to uh, benzene uh, directly, um, and that was a that was a key discovery that I think that also propelled the field towards uh, asking questions that people weren't asking before. And so, those were really important. And then Rail at the tail end of his career um, started working on uh, rhodium-3 catalyzed annulation reactions, which were sort of 
again, modeled off of the LaRoc indole synthesis, just deleting the pre-functionalization and figuring out how to turn that catalytic cycle over. And, um, and then uh, when he died, then the field sort of exploded and many, many other players ended up, um, you know, making key contributions there. You know, Tom Rovis, uh, Frank Glorious, um, notably doing a lot of rhodium-3 chemistry. And it turns out, you know, rhodium-3 CP complexes will activate any CH bond it runs into practically, right? So that was a, that was a key discovery. And um, his his group is the only group to really find an application for rubidium. Am I am I mistaken? <laughs> yeah, there is this one paper where uh, this is sort of the typical, you know, counter counter ion effects we used to call them, right? So <laughs> so so uh, I I was probably the first to observe this in the lab where uh, we had certain reactions where potassium bases didn't work at all and cesium bases worked, and that's always really difficult to unpack because it could be an actual counter ion effect or counter counter ion effect and in that case it was because potassium iodide is soluble and cesium iodide is not for example but in some cases the particle size effects as well so it was pretty common for people to screen you know down uh, down the periodic table and so you start at sodium and you kind of work your way down and we kind of always skipped rubidium carbonate um, only because it just you know wasn't something that people use and Lo and behold, one time it ended up being the best base and, and we used it. But I, I totally agree with you. I, I'm not sure that we understand those effects as well as we think we do. In some cases, probably they are real. And in other cases, I suspect it's it's particle size um, effects that they're actually driving a lot of those things. As you know, you know, for process chemistry, the, those bases can be very, very problematic. Sure. All right. And he had a, a very a lasting personal impact on you. I know you, you've tweeted about your love for scotch uh, results from your relationship with, uh, with Keith, but I, I'm sure there are uh, many, many other things. Would you like to share a couple? Sure, sure. Yeah. So like I said, Keith and I really clicked um, when I first met him. I just you know, found a kinship very, very early on. I mean, I think we, um, we, we tend to romanticize our, our time as graduate students. Or, um, and so as far as I can tell, this is how I feel today and, and how it was really back then, 15 years ago. I'll, I'll leave that up for interpretation to my <laughs> colleagues that were there. But, but you know, um, being sort of the first uh, PhD student to graduate and, and maybe the third person to join the lab, I mean, I, I got a lot of FaceTime with Keith very, very early on in his career where sort of the student, student PI power dynamic isn't quite as pronounced as if you join a lab that has a really established – uh, a PI. Um, and and I learned a lot from sort of his approach and how he thought about solving problems, how he thought about motivating others. And th- those are probably the things that I took away the most. I mean, obviously, I learned a lot of chemistry and I learned skills. But, you know, thinking about his way of, of motivating the group and, and what creating a culture that um, had sort of everyone pushing in the same direction and and actually helping each other out. So we had a very collaborative uh, environment uh, that we worked in and and sort of expected to uh, help each other out all the time. And and I think we got a lot more done that way uh, than than we would have if we were all sort of concentrating on our own project. And he always felt like, and and I think he he's even said this, and it's sort of there was a it sort of came back out after he died that, you know, he felt that, um, you know, fostering a, a collaborative research environment was more important than work hours in the context of graduate students. And I think that was absolutely true for us. I mean, he never, he in fact, never asked anyone to work nights or weekends. Um, he expected people to be there when he was there and, and he had a very healthy work-life fit. He had found a way to make that work for himself and for his young family. And so as a young father myself, you know, five or six years later, um, after he passed, I reflected a lot on that, right? Like he made really important decisions about 
his work life and and certainly something that he was super passionate about and could have consumed his entire life and time as as it does for for many PIs. But he had, um, you know, a young family that was growing at the time. I remember uh, both uh, uh, both of his two youngest children were born while while I was in the group and uh, he wanted to be home for dinner and and have Mm. uh, a meal with his family. And he wanted to minimize his travel in a way that it wasn't absolutely disruptive. And I mean, you know, um, in, in his role, uh, especially when he, he really took off, I mean, he was definitely traveling a lot, but he made choices about those things. And then he made the best use of his time when he was at work. And I think that's the really important thing. This, this what you're not going to do list of things, um, a lot of us don't aren't really disciplined about that. And that's one of the things I took away from him is I need to make a list. I need to know what are the things I'm not going to do. And that extended to research. Like we had projects where we would find a hit and he was like, and that's kind of interesting, but I want to focus on these areas and I don't, I don't want to sort of do this. And it would have been really easy to just sort of let a PhD student go off on a tangent on something that either he thought wasn't as exciting or wouldn't yield as many opportunities for future results. Um, or maybe would have ended up in a, in a lower impact journal. Um, and, and he always sort of looked out for the students, um, that way. And so this culture building aspect and how you motivate people, uh, how you create a, a sense of togetherness in a group is something that I've tried to emulate in, in sort of my, uh, in sort of my own group. And, uh, also, uh, how he, th- how he thought uh, about work-life fit are probably the two things that, that were sort of really impactful in the way that I think about stuff. What do you say that you won't do? <laughs> um, so it, it, it ranges, um, quite a bit from the very mundane to the, the, the very broad, what I will, I'll give you a, 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 an easy example. I try, if I had to travel quite a bit for my job, um, both for my external commitments, but also for my internal commitments, because the the DPC group is spread across five different sites at Merck. So I'm spending a lot of time going to San Francisco and, and Pennsylvania and and Boston. And I decided uh, when I took on that role uh, a little over three years, I guess almost four years ago now, that um, I wouldn't travel on weekends. So if I have mm. a meeting, so if I have a meeting that starts on Monday or I have a meeting that finishes on Friday, I will. Uh, try to avoid, you know, trying to leave Sunday afternoon or, or coming back Saturday. Mm-hmm. I sort of I sort of protected that. Um, and that's sort of, a, I, you know, I try not to do that. I, I had a colleague who was working out of the UK and he did the same thing. And that's even worse in the UK because of the red eyes. And so he would leave Monday from the UK, which he gets a little time back on the way here. So he would get here sort of Monday afternoon and he would leave on the red eye on Thursday as opposed to mm-hmm. leaving on the red eye on Friday. And um, and so that that you you got to decide what your boundaries are in terms of your work life fit. And so for me, what that meant was I'm not traveling on weekends. I want to do pickup and I want to have dinner with my kids uh, mm-hmm. most nights. And of course there are exceptions to that, right? But that means that at 5 p.m. I'm packing up my stuff and I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you schedule a meeting with me after 5 p.m., it will be on the phone while I'm driving home because I have a pretty long commute. And people know that. And then uh, sometimes that means that I'm going to do a little bit of email later in the day because I just didn't get, you know, the chance. But once the kids are in bed at 8:30, maybe I'll whip out my phone and take a look at what I missed, you know, in that last little bit of the day, either because I had a meeting from three to five and really didn't have time to even look, or because there's a, an emerging issue. And so that's an example of something you need to decide what your boundaries are from a work-life perspective. Professionally speaking, you know. Even though uh, I'm essentially a, a full-time manager and executive at this point, and I'm not as close to the science, I've decided that there are certain scientific elements, whether they are 
brainstorming meetings or departmental meetings or invited speakers that, you know, come and give a seminar that I want to prioritize with my time. Mm-hmm. And if I prioritize that, that means I need to make room for it, which means I need to skip maybe things that I think are less valuable with my time because I could be triple booked every hour of the day if I wanted to. And so you need to decide what really feeds your fire, what what you what you can actually uh, make an impact on. And so some of those things are selfish like this. I want to be closer to the science, even though I don't need to all the time. I'm going to make time for that. And sometimes it's just a question of, well, I can have way more impact on this team than I would on that team. And so I need to make a choice uh, about that. And I, mean, I want to come all- back to um, uh, the the culture building. Um, I mean, you, you said that he, he built this. Uh, um, this this culture of teamwork and whatnot. How how did he do that? Like how did he encourage um, students to work together on things? Uh, like what was part of it? Just picking the right people, or uh, yeah. were the things that he actively did to encourage people? So so I think it was I, I think it, it always starts with getting the right people on the bus, right? So very early on, he 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 selected people that um, you know meshed really well with others they were people person right so if you look at you know and uh, this list doesn't exist but if you were to look at a chronology of the people who joined the lab you know the first sort of five six seven people that joined the lab they were all people person uh, all, all uh, people that, people, people. that liked being yeah people people is that a word I don't know um, <laughs> people that wanted to be around others um, and that that fed off of that I'm, I'm one of those individuals like I, if I'm in an office all day long just making slides or something I come home and I'm completely drained of energy like I I need that to feed my fire I need to talk to others I need to ideate with them um, and and the sort of first four or five students that were there were all like that. And that sort of creates sort of a baseline expectation of like, if you come here, like people will come and talk to you about your science and we expect you to talk to them about their science. And 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 that was the first thing. And then he was also really good about um, having sort of uh, frequent interactions with the group as a whole. And so they were either informal, like he would walk through the lab. Um, and it never felt like he was checking up on us, as I know it does for a lot of people when the PI walks into the lab. And maybe that was sort of the, the low, you know, power distance dynamic that that we had in the group. But he would he would stop by frequently, and you genuinely felt like he cared about what you were working on. And then we got together as a group a lot, both during uh, work hours. And so he would have group meetings over lunch, which you know, it's a double-edged sword because you lose your lunchtime, but it's better than having it on Saturday mornings or at night. Um, and so, again, trying to be respectful of of people's time. But so we ate together a lot um, and and uh, we spent a lot of time together in groups as opposed to sort of at our fume hood, you know, working. And so creating those little venues where you can sort of get people together talking uh, and learning from each other. We had a lot of team building stuff that we did as a group. So we did curling and bowling and pool and um it it didn't have to be a big thing you know it didn't have to be really big but we always sort of came back together and then to be completely honest in some cases he made mistakes in terms of how he selected individuals and then he corrected them you know relatively quickly and so those people that came into the group and maybe were more divisive than bringing people together they eventually left and you know i don't know exactly how that happened um but I, i i'd be naive to think that that keith didn't have a hand to play in that it sounds like he took a very active role in um, guiding the group, and that's an important part of of, of setting the culture that uh, that you want. I think so. I think yeah. I mean my impression of and I've, I've obviously talked with a lot of PIs since then, right? And from a variety of institutions who have a variety of ways of thinking about all of these things. But I think the one thing they all have in common is 
at the beginning of their labs, they really set the tone for what they wanted things to be like. And then once you get to a certain critical mass, then that self-sustains. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it just it's going to happen regardless. And so if you don't pay attention early, you're going to lose control of it. And if you do pay attention early, then presumably um, at some point you'll sustain it. And that seems to be something that all good PIs do. And they all have a sense of, of what they're looking for in individuals. Um, and if they select the right people and then sustain their involvement, they can get to that point. I think Kid Keith did that extraordinarily well. I was talking with Caroline about this, that like, you know, maybe there are some people who are just natural leaders, natural uh, good people managers, and some people maybe not. Um, is is there a way to really like teach it? Or, or <laughs> is there a good way for people who are not necessarily as intuitively talented to to learn these kinds of skills yeah you know what what um there's a recent uh, marcus buckingham book uh which he co-authored which is called nine lies about work and uh lie number i think it's lie number seven or maybe it's lie number nine he says uh, one of the lies of work is that leadership is a thing <laughs> which uh, when you read the statement, you're kind of like, wait a second, we talk about leadership a lot at work and we talk a lot about it in business school and we talk a lot about it, you know, in all these arenas. And the point he's trying to make is that you can't measure leadership, um, but you can measure followership. And so followership is a thing, uh, not leadership. And when you change the problem from how to be a leader to how do you build followers, it actually opens the door quite a bit to who can be a leader. And you're right. Some people sort of naturally are, um, you know, have a gravitational pull and people sort of nav- naturally gravitate towards them. And, and we say, oh, that person has a natural leadership ability. Right. Um, but that usually is a certain type of individual. Right. It, it might be somebody who's maybe more extroverted, more of a people person. But if you think about followers, um, you can have a very introverted person who has a pretty strong followership, right? A subject matter expert in an area that is a go-to person for people. That That's leadership to me, right? And so the key thing there, I think, is it, it's absolutely teachable in the sense that being a people manager is not just about leadership. There's an actual deliverable there in terms of, of what you have to do uh, in terms of developing people and, and how you frame that. And that is just a list of tasks. It's not so much a list of talents, Right. Mm-hmm. There's things that you need to, to think about. Um, but then the, the, this aspect that you sort of need to be a natural born leader, I, I think that some people fall into that only because it plays to their strengths more in the context that they're in. But if you sit down and, and, and you sort of figure out what what really feeds you, what brings you a lot of energy, what could you turn into a strength that could lead to really good results? I think anyone can do it. Um, and uh, it's just about finding the right opportunity. But th- this this idea that followership is actually what matters, then it, it changes, I think, the perspective uh, of what is possible. Interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about, you know, uh, your own leadership style or your own gathering followership style. You run a, a fairly large department. How do you how do you think about developing uh, junior members of your department? I guess do you have an overarching philosophy. Yeah, so so I do have a I do have a philosophy and and uh, I didn't I didn't I wasn't born with it I I sort of came across it as I became to as I in my first roles as a people manager so probably you know earlier on in your career you you mentor others you know like if you think about the senior graduate student junior graduate student interaction or maybe even undergrad intern interaction and and that's kind of how it starts right there's sort of a how do you help others be better like to me. 
if you ask me, like, what's the role of a leader? The role of a leader is to figure out how to make others around them better. And I think you try things, right? And at first, it's not very structured because you're not really accountable for it. And then when you become a people manager for the first time, then all of a sudden it matters because you're going to be held accountable for it. And um, what I quickly realized and what most people tend to do in those situations is they sort of imagine what they would do in a situation or how they would handle a certain thing. Or And, uh, and, and what you're trying to do there is to sort of make clones of yourself, if you will. And you assume that that's the way to do it because clearly you're successful. You were just put in a role of responsibility, right? <laughs> And uh, I think that's a huge fallacy. And I actually think that um, if you think of graduate school, I mean, that's a huge risk, right? You see the PI and you see the way that they're successful in what they do. And then either you align with that um, and it makes sense to you or you're like, eh, I, I don't think this is for me. I, I'm going to I'm going to leave. Right. And I think yeah. this is a huge problem we have in STEM where you're sort of, you know, because the role models are what they are, you know, um, they, they end up mattering a lot more. But anyway, so so I realized uh, when I first became a, a, a people manager that um, I, I really wanted to uh, focus on people's strengths um, and take a strength-based approach to development. And uh, actually, a, a boss of mine at the time, you know, I, I was writing like a year-end review or something, and um, I had written something like, don't be so quick to judge about an employee. And it was the first time I was writing year-end reviews. And so I had my boss read them and just sort of give me feedback. And he wrote that, he read that line. He said, well, you can't write that. And I'm like, well, why? He's like, well, this person can't help but judge people quickly. That's how they are, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're quick-witted. Uh, they make quick decisions and they have a, an impression of someone very quickly. That's going to happen regardless of whether you tell them not to do it or not. What you need to tell them is to modify their behavior when that happens, right? So, and and how do you use that as a way of both knowing that this is something that you're prone to do, that you're going to make quick decisions, which, by the way, is a strength, right? A lot of times mm-hmm. making quick decisions, and most of the time, is going to be a strength. But there are basements to that strength and, and, and a way to use it non-productively. And, and that was sort of a huge aha moment for me. I was like, whoa. It just yeah. sort of blew my mind, right? And, and sort of, okay, how do I get to know what people's strengths are? And by strength, I don't mean like, oh, I'm really good at running columns. I mean like mm-hmm. the things that you are inherently – you know, let's call them born or bred to do, right? Like I'm really good at, you know, deciphering patterns. I'm really good at communication. I'm really good at building deep relationships. And then how do you leverage that in a productive way? And when you use a talent in a productive way, it becomes a strength. And so when you have that mindset, and that's the mindset that I've had since then, um, then you try to find the best place within a group that you're currently uh, running, uh, whether it's a small team of four or a large team of, of 90, um, where that person is most likely to strive with respect to their strength, but they need to do that for themselves. Like you can't be like, oh, you're like this. You're going to love this job that you didn't even know existed and that you're not sure you want to do. You need to explore things with them. And, and what I found when I do that and when I have done that, that means that some people will play to their strengths in, in groups that are outside of mine or outside of my whole department. Um, and you need to be willing to uh, let people develop in those directions. And, and that's like a, just a matter of fact. I think if you try to sort of force people into boxes, um, you're going to end up with a lower performing organization, which is actually worse. Um, so, so I'm a big fan of finding roles and, and not just roles, but assignments, um, 
ways of doing work, which is sometimes the same assignment can be accomplished in two different ways depending on who's doing it, that play to people's strengths. I want people to know what their strengths are. I want want people to know what their tendencies are, both because sometimes, you know, the the critical feedback you get is basically you misusing that talent. And so yeah. you can kind of dial it back a little bit or at least understand the liability. And then when people do leave to go on to better and bigger things, either within Merck or outside of Merck, I've had people in my group that have gone on to roles of greater responsibility outside of Merck. And, you know, if I was the kind of person who wasn't OK with that, then I think my organization would be worse off for it. Because when that person leaves, it creates an opportunity for someone else. And when that someone else moves up, then it creates an opportunity for a graduate student that cut and come in. Uh, and so, you know. I think Roger Perlmutter said it best that great organizations have great alumni. So every time I have somebody mm-hmm. leave my group for, for, for a great opportunity on the outside, I kind of pat myself on the back and, and then it creates opportunities on the inside. And that's how I think about it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's certainly an element of like, you know, as, as a people manager, you know, checking your assumptions about what, what you want this report to develop or the direction that you want your report to develop. And like, I think you, you hear stories all the time of like, you know, PIs who just, uh, who kind of assume that, um, their grad students want to be academics and uh, don't necessarily take the time to dig deep and say, like, say, is is that actually the direction you want to go? Um, and create a, a space where you know people are comfortable expressing that. You know, maybe there's something else that uh, would would be interesting. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, just to add to that, I think as young leaders, especially, we tend to diagnose things very, very quickly, right? We want to solve the problem. Like somebody walks into your office and they're like, oh, this isn't going so well. And you're like, okay, it's not going so well because you're this way and we need to do this. And and the key thing is, is actually to ask questions because mm-hmm. sometimes you need to create that insight both within yourself because you don't want to sort of jump to conclusions, but within the employee themselves so they can figure out what it is that they really care about, you know? And, and, yeah. and that's that's a really important thing. And so what you just said around like, the sort of industrial academia choice that students have to make. I mean, that's a really difficult choice. And, and mm-hmm. I was super lucky that Keith was actually very open and was really, like I said, asking questions about what I was really excited about and mm-hmm. what I really liked. And asking in a way that you felt like you could uh, give an answer that was honest. And Yeah, know. I never felt, absolutely never felt that um, I was letting Keith down in any sort of way when I was very explicit with him that my dream job was to be a process chemist at Merck. And he was like, okay, let's let's figure out how that how you can do that. And that ranged from here are the types of projects I want you to do in the next two years so that mm-hmm. you have a great story to tell when you give an interview or here are the types of postdocs you should consider because the skill set there is going to be useful, but also the network will be useful to getting you into that place. Um, and then, by the way, here's you know one of my best friends from grad school who is at Merck Process, and I'm going to get you to meet him and you can show him your science and, you know, make a good impression. So, so you know, it would have been really easy for him to say like, oh, I really want my first PhD student to also be a PI and also be successful so that I can look around and say like, oh, look at me. I'm, you know, my progeny is, you know, doing really well out there. Um, and so, you know, I never felt that at all. Yeah. Mm. I think you touched on something earlier about how like, you know, before you're in a, a people manager role, there are activities and things that you can try out and, and uh, use to help people develop around you even when you're not accountable for it. And I think that's like a really powerful idea that um, I'm not in a people manager role myself uh, right now. And, you know, when when eventually that happens, you know, I have this fear of like, okay, I'm, I'm dropped into this situation now and like, okay, well, I hope that there's like resources and, and stuff for me to uh, do that job well as soon as I'm dropped into it. But like um, knowing that there are things that you can work on in advance of that <laughs> is is a really useful one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every interaction you have on a team 
offers an, an opportunity for you to develop as a people manager, right? There are going to be people on that team that are more senior than you, but that have a complementary experience base and they don't know expertise. And so, you know, in, in the pharma industry, cross-functional teams range from, you know, therapeutic area biologists um, all the way to formulation scientists and even supply chain people, right? Depending on which stage of development you are. And so as a synthetic chemist, you can actually cover a pretty wide swath of that, right? So my group right now covers everything starting from early discovery all the way to commercial supply. So the chemists in my team get exposed to a lot of cross-functional teams at various stages of development. So they have an opportunity every time they interact with a colleague on that team that isn't a chemist or 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 isn't, you know, familiar with the way that we make decisions, why why we do things a certain way, why it's important. You have an opportunity to mentor and you have an opportunity to say like Here's what I think I can do to make your job easier. So if you're the safety assessment rep and you're trying to figure out how to design a study and you're working within the confines of the timeline and how much material is needed, a chemist can actually sit down and say, explain to me what you're trying to do and I'll try to see what I can do to help. And that's ultimately what a manager is supposed to do, right? You sit down across the table or in an office with someone and they say, I'm really interested in this or I'm really passionate about that. I really like what I'm doing right now in this. And you have to try to feed that fire and, and make them the best version of themselves that they can be. So that's that's a really easy one. I think in, in graduate school, what I would say, and I, I ask people this all the time when they interview at Merck, you know, what are some examples of mentoring that you have? And people immediately go to, oh, well, I supervised this undergrad one summer, which mm-hmm. is a great example, right? If you have an opportunity to do that, mm-hmm. I would absolutely do that as a graduate student. I did it four times as, as a graduate student. Um, and it was an extremely rewarding experience, but I think what people undervalue is, uh, peer mentoring. Um, and I think to a certain extent that the U S PhD system where it's sort of a one student, one project scenario, it's really easy to get isolated on your project and only care about what's going on in your shop. Um, and, uh, and not necessarily think about how you can help others around you. And, and peer mentoring is, is, is really, really critical in 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 the real world so you think about you know if you're a pi writing your first grant if nobody's going to help you with that first grant it's probably not going to be as good right Mm -hmm. if you're if you're a graduate student and you're really nervous about public speaking wouldn't it be great if the student in the lab that's really good at public speaking would help you with that like there are very specific things that people can do like if you just i don't know if it's on a daily basis or on a weekly basis but like what am i doing to make others better today and how will i learn from that experience because guess what? You're not going to be good at it the first time you do it. You're going to make mistakes. Um, and uh, and then you're going to learn from those. And so when you are asked to do it uh, because it's your job and you're accountable for it, then you're not going to make all those mistakes again for the first time. And so I actually feel really bad for for PIs when they, you know, they transition from a postdoc where essentially you're running at 100 miles an hour trying to get your results in whatever two, three years that you have so that you can land that interview and get that job. Then you get that job, you show up, and it's like, congrats, you're a PI. Now you need to uh, run a business, right? Here's your budget. Oh, by the way, you got to go find all that money. Um, and then you have to recruit. By the way, no no help from HR on that. You're going to have to decide who's good and who's not, but you've never done that before. And then when you have those people, you're going to have to performance manage them. In some cases, you're going to have to uh, maybe uh, performance manage them out of your group. In some cases, you're going to have to rescue the ones that aren't doing well. And then you have to deal with things like mental health and all this other stuff. And they receive like zero training, right? So yeah. 
So to a certain extent in, in, in industry, we tend to do a better job of preparing new people managers, even though one could argue it's not as good as it could be. But I feel way worse for the PIs that have to do this. And I actually think it's a huge gap. I think grad school should have courses that train people for that kind of stuff. What questions would you suggest like an interviewee, whether it's um, you know someone doing a grad school visit or someone coming to Merck or another pharmaceutical or anything? Like, What, what would you suggest an interviewee um, ask in order to gauge whether the workplace is a healthy one or that that their manager might be a good one? Yeah, I, I think you need to you need to ask the types of questions that will make you understand if the people there are excited about the same things that you're excited about, because ultimately you become the people you work with. And so if if you're interviewing somewhere and we tend to fall in love with the prestige of a position or a school or a title, right? So you get into, you know, a certain school and you're like, oh, if I could go there, that'd be so awesome because I'm going to have a fantastic pedigree. And and then there's another school that maybe isn't as good. But then when you visit the two, like one of them, you you just you just have a natural affinity for it. You're like, oh, these are my people, right? Um, and what I always tell people is like when you're in an interview, you want to figure out if you're the kind of person, if, if those people are your kind of people. And so ask them what they're excited about. If they bring up stuff that you, you don't think you're going to be excited about, then that that might be a problem. Ask them how they manage their time. That's kind of a way of saying, like, how hard do you guys work here, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you manage your time? How do you get everything done? And if the answer is, well, you know, I show up at 7 a.m. and I stay here till 1 a.m. the next day and I get everything done, and then you can ask yourself, like, Okay, is that the norm or is it just this, this one person? But that is also true in, in, in industry, right? Like how much time do you spend in the lab versus how much time do you spend doing other th- other things? What's the What are the types of things that you've learned since you've been here, right? Because um, mm-hmm. people tend to ask – so I'll tell you what people do ask, which I'm not sure is, is that useful, but in, in some cases can be. They ask about like what's it like to live in New Jersey? So if you're not from New Jersey and you, you want to know that – I mean, that's a that's a valid question to ask. But um, some people will ask things that I think are super insightful around, like, tell me about how people move through the organization. So is it is there a lot of lateral movement? Are people learning new skills or is it very vertical? And so you're basically just waiting for your boss to get hit by a bus or get promoted or, <laughs> you know, and and people tend not to ask those types of questions. Like you're going to start here and you're going to care about career progression. But if you don't ask about what career progression looks like, and, and it's not like, hey, when am I going to get promoted? That's not a great interview question. Mm-hmm. But what does career progression look like here? What are the types of moves that people make? So so I I think those are, are really important things to ask. Um, and then what are the other things you care about, right? So if you're joining um, an industrial group, you might care about what does the uh, interaction with the external world look like? Or you maybe you don't care, right? But mm-hmm. um, if you do care, you want to know that. If, if you're the kind of person who thrives at going to conferences and writing papers and, and doing all of that, um, you want to know if that's something that continues or stops. And maybe you're willing to live with it stopping, right? So to me, these are the kinds of things that I think people – I feel like uh, when you say, do you have any questions for me? They try to ask a question that is more of them showing off how awesome they are. Mm-hmm. You know, they try to impress you with their question. Yeah. And I'm much more interested in folks that know what they want mm-hmm. um, and 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 sometimes, you know, have done their homework. So they're like, hey, I see mm-hmm. that you've moved to three different sites and had seven different roles since you've been here. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, is that normal? Yeah. What, what is that? And then you're kind of like, OK, well, let me tell you about how I did it. 
but then let me also tell you how it can be like Mm -hmm. there's a there's a sense of of understanding what it's going to be like because when you're interviewing somewhere you're interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing you yeah um and i think a a common thread among like all the examples that you used as good examples of questions are that they're all open-ended questions like you know what does that look like what um and giving a lot of people latitude to you know hopefully give good answers um you're right like if you ask like what what are your work hours specifically um it's you can answer it with a one-word answer and it's uh like it doesn't give you a a, it doesn't paint a picture of of the workplace in the way that i think the questions that you're uh, suggesting what i would recommend as a question that anybody should ask at any job interview whether it's for grad school is ask the person since you've been here, what's the most surprising thing that you've experienced since you've been here? Like, what's something that was completely unexpected when you first joined that, you know, uh, you can speak to? It's actually really difficult for humans to have a preconceived answer to that. Like, if you ask somebody, what do you really like about working at Merck? You're going to get the, oh, I really like working at Merck because the science is so awesome. Like, there's sort of a, you know, you, you know what to say, whether whether you, you like it or not, and you're going to get the exact same answer from everyone. But if mm-hmm. you ask what's the most surprising thing, like you're kind of, people stop dead in their tracks, they have to think mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to get a different answer from 10 people that work at the same place. So do that with grad school interviews. Do that with uh, industrial job interviews. That's, that's a great question to get like a real unfiltered answer, and then maybe you get a nugget out of that that you can then sort of dive deeper on. So that's a great question. I'm it's also a great forward. question to ask um, interviewees. So I ask that question to people who come to Merck. Like, what was the most surprising thing about you deciding to do a postdoc here? You know, so um, so that's that's a great question to ask no matter what. I'm looking forward to checking in with you in in a, a few months and seeing how many of uh, candidates coming through Merck ask you that question. Elsie, <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things that you kind of mentioned is is cross-functional teams and. Uh, the role of the chemist. And that's actually something that I think is interesting because it aligns with something that Derek Lowe says, which is that like he has said on a number of occasions that it's the role of the chemist to be the person who listens to the most people and synthesizes all yeah, of the information. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that that there is something unique about chemists? I, I mean, and it's of course, it's three chemists basically saying yes. <laughs> You know, Chemists are, the most are so important. important. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna venture a guess that um, you know in a medicinal chemistry endeavor with small molecules or with a commercial manufacturing route development with small molecules that obviously chemists are playing a big role, right? Mm-hmm. But but I do think that there's probably a little bit of survivor bias there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it actually probably very organization dependent. So on a team where the the medicinal chemist is you know on a core team let's say where the medicinal chemist is is often also the project lead or at least a co-lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean obviously they have a lot of influence because they're the ones directing which molecules are made and how far they make it down the research operating plan. So there's an element of your role is central because of what you bring to that team. Mm-hmm. What I will say is it's if you think about that role where where you need to decide okay here's a molecule here's everything i know about that one and the thousands that were made before that and here's everything i understand about this program and this target and now i'm going to decide which molecule to make next that almost requires you to know a lot of things about about all these other fields that you don't you're not an expert at like you need to understand formulation because you don't want to make a molecule that is going to be you know brick dust and you need to understand 
you know, permeability because this is an intracellular target and you need to understand bioavailability and you need to understand um, how the preclinical assay is going to be run, you know, and, and these are all things that you need to understand how the assay actually runs. So you get a number out, but where does that number come from? And what are the potential pitfalls of that when I design my molecule? So it sort of forces you into that role. Whereas mm-hmm. if, you know, a lot of the other functions on those teams have a little bit less of a central role because they're not designing molecules, right? So there might be like a different different skill set. I wonder, you know, if we had a fourth person on the call that was in discovery biologics where there are typically no chemists on those teams mm-hmm. and you have sort of the, the people who discover the monoclonal antibodies and the, and the similar set of cross-functional teams, but there are no chemists involved. I wonder how they would feel. What I've experienced, and this is of course completely biased by my experience at Merck because I've never been anywhere else, um, is that it's more outside of the context of the team where you can really see if chemists are influential or not. So when you're at those governance meetings where all of the VPs and senior VPs are and they're deciding where to go, you know, from a portfolio standpoint, how strong is the chemist's voice there? And that to me is is a differentiator at Merck anyway. So chemists have a very strong voice at Merck. And, and I think Merck has a very strong legacy of of very, very strong chemists, both in, in the development space going all the way back to Max Tischler. Uh, and a discovery space as well. And and I would say that on teams, it maybe makes a little bit more sense that, that they would they would have a lot of clout. But it's sort of in the sort of grander scheme of things that when you start seeing uh, things that that people value their opinion because they understand that they have a broad view of what's going on in terms of the portfolio. That's a really, really powerful thing. And that's where you see sort of chemists really stand out, uh, in my opinion. Elsie, uh, I really appreciate you um, taking the time out of your morning to uh, to chat with us about um, about Keith, about your your thoughts on leadership, and um, and really appreciate your time. Oh, it was great. Had a great time. Thank great. you very much. Thanks again. Thanks again to LC. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. LC Square. Thanks again to Brendan Burkett for designing our logo. You can follow him at Chemscrapes, and to Caroline Landau for pointing our podcast title. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you choose. Don't forget to rate and review our podcast, and feel free to leave us your feedback on Twitter at Periodic Baker. This episode was brought to you by the letter L way and the number 7. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. There are little Keithisms, you know, little quotes uh, that, that one can live by, and... Um, you know, he used to say things like, uh, think long enough about an experiment to convince yourself to try it, but not too long that you're going to convince yourself that it won't work. Mm-hmm.